Hello and welcome to Freud in Focus, a podcast from the Freud Museum London, with Tom DeRose and me, Jamie Ruers. In this series, entitled Summer Shorts, we've been discussing some of Freud's shorter and, and lighter papers. And in this, our final episode of the series, we'll be looking at Freud's paper on transience, published in 1916. Tom, as always, can we start with the context? Well, the first thing that we notice, of course, is the date of publication, 1916. So right in the middle of World War I. And in fact, the paper was actually written in November 1915, so that was just a little over a year into the conflict. And by the time that Freud sat down to write on transience, any initial enthusiasm for the war had worn off. I say enthusiasm, and whilst it's true that Freud was not against the war when it broke out at the end of July 1914, his initial support for the war effort was always tempered with a certain irony. For the first time in 30 years, I feel myself an Austrian and would just once more like to give this uncompromising empire a chance, he wrote to Karl Abraham in July 1914. And in August 1914, he wrote this to Ferenczi. I suddenly mobilised libido for Austria-Hungary. <clears throat> now, of course, he was not alone in his kind of enthusiasm, even if it was always tempered, as writers including Mann, Zweig, Hoffmannsthal and Rilke all wrote in support of the war. But increasingly, he became aware of the terrible destructiveness that the war had unleashed. And, of course, his own son, Martin, was serving in the Austro-Hungarian army, soon to be followed by both Oliver and Ernst in 1916. The text that really illuminates Freud's changing attitude to the war, and that immediately proceeds on transience in the standard edition, is entitled Thoughts for the Times on War and Death. It's a brilliant piece, actually, almost poetic in its description. Freud's argument is really a plea for the acceptance of the reality principle. We thought, prior to the war, that we had scaled the heights of civilization, that international comradeship and scientific endeavor had made war a thing of the past, that morality and culture had triumphed over self-interest and barbarism. The war had shown that these attitudes were in fact illusory, that civilization was a fragile structure and at constant risk of collapse. The best defense against future conflict is one of self-awareness, by understanding the destructive capability of human beings by ridding ourselves of the naive belief in our own essential goodness, we would hopefully recognise the tenuous nature of civilization and attend to it with more vigilance and care. On Transience was written six months or so after Thoughts for the Times, and although Freud doesn't specifically reference this earlier work, it certainly expresses a similar mood one text that casts an even longer shadow over our current piece 
is, of course, the hugely influential Morning and Melancholia, the first draft of, of which was written in February 1915, although it wasn't actually published until 1917. We'll see that as this short paper unfolds, the theme of mourning begins to take centre stage. So let's read the first paragraph. And this is in the standard edition, uh, number 14, page 305. Freud writes, Not long ago, I went on a summer walk through a smiling countryside in the company of a taciturn friend and of a young but already famous poet. The poet admired the beauty of the scene around us, but felt no joy in it. He was disturbed by the thought that all this beauty was fated to extinction that it would vanish when winter came, like all human beauty and all the beauty and splendor that men have created or will create. All that he would otherwise have loved and admired seemed to him to be shorn of its worth by the transience which was its doom. Perhaps we can begin by discussing Freud's style here. And do we know who the young poet and the, the taciturn friend are, were? Well, there's a, a kind of an elegiac tone to this opening, isn't there? The idyllic summer walk, which took place in the past, pre-war past, and the smiling countryside, a kind of paradise lost, which is contrasted with the taciturn friend and the young poet who can recognise beauty and yet find no joy in it. The note at the bottom of the page suggests that the identity of his companions has not been established, but subsequent research suggests that the taciturn friend was in fact Lou Andreas Salome, and the young but already famous poet was Rainer Maria Rilke. We have a record in Lou Salome's journal of her introducing Rilke to Freud at the Psychoanalytic Congress in Munich in September 1913. In her journal, she writes how the Congress itself was coloured by the increasing tension between Jung and Freud, with Jung acting with an earnestness that was composed, in her words, of pure aggression, ambition and intellectual brutality. Salome clearly felt a great deal of sympathy for Freud, who was the same as ever, but it was only with difficulty that he restrained his deep emotion. Despite this oppressive atmosphere, the meeting with Rilke was a success. They liked each other, writes Salome, and we stayed together that evening until late at night. In the description of the walk itself, an instance of poetic, sorry, is the description of the walk itself an instance of poetic license from Freud? Did it suit his purposes to situate the discussion with Rilke and Salome in the smiling countryside on a summer walk? We enter the realm of speculation here, but it's certainly tempting to think that a poet with such a developed sensitivity as Rilke may have intuited a sense of depression in the air over the impending breakup of the psychoanalytic community, as intimated by the tensions apparent at the Congress. 
How much is Freud retrospectively persuading himself in this paper, as much as his two companions, as to the beauty and value of things that fall apart? Or perhaps it's best to forego any more speculation at this point. But there also is the presence of another poet haunting the shadows of this text. As it was initially published in an elaborate volume entitled In Goethe's Land, a commemorative edition that was commissioned by the Berlin Goethe Society. As we know from previous episodes, Goethe was a hugely important figure for Freud, and I think this fact is evident in the beauty of Freud's writing here. So we have Freud, Goethe, Salome, Rilke, the impending schism in the psychoanalytic community, and the coming catastrophe of war, all woven into this three-page text. So it's quite a heady mixture. Oh, absolutely. So for Rilke, as, as a poet, things lose their worth if they're, if they're fated to decay. How does Freud treat this attitude? Well, firstly, Freud treats the position represented by the poet, and I, and I think we can refer to him as Rilke from now on, and his taciturn friend, Lou Salome, rationally. So despondency in the face of destruction, of transience, is a reaction to the frustration of our own wishes. We could argue that desire for permanence that all of this beauty cannot possibly just pass away, that there must be something lasting underneath it all, kind of underlies Plato's theory of forms and, to a certain extent, the history of Western metaphysics. Freud appreciates the pain associated with the rejection of immortality and the possibility of, and the possibility of permanence. But he disputes the fact that the transience of what is beautiful involves any loss in its worth. Indeed, he goes on to stress the fact that the value for us of what is beautiful is actually increased by its impermanence. He writes, Limitation in the possibility of an enjoyment raises the value of that enjoyment. Beauty of spring is only possible due to the fact that winter is on the horizon. The beauty of a flower depends on the briefness of its existence. And perhaps the most crucial is the argument that the beauty or perfection of a work of art or of an intellectual achievement loses nothing of its worth because of its temporal limitation. What Freud is doing here, among other things, is to position himself against that metaphysical tradition in its Platonic heritage. Plato had argued that the true nature of beauty, truth and goodness could be found not in their transient manifestations, so in the flower or the artwork, but in the eternal and fixed forms. So it is the form of beauty which is truly beautiful rather than its specific examples that are transient. So if Rilke is unable to enjoy the impermanence of beauty, because he has recognised the non-existence of the beautiful, or the eternal form of beauty, 
Freud celebrates this non-existence by arguing that beauty and transience are mutually conditioned. Mm -hmm. Well, let's read together the, the next paragraph then. Freud says, These considerations appeared to me incontestable, but I noticed that I had made no impression on either the poet or upon my friend. My failure led me to infer that some powerful emotional factor was at work which was disturbing their judgment, and I believed later that I had discovered what it was. What spoilt their enjoyment of beauty must have been a revolt in their minds against mourning. The idea that all this beauty was transient was giving these two sensitive minds a foretaste of mourning over its decease. And since the mind instinctively recoils from anything that is painful, they felt their enjoyment of beauty interfered by, with by thoughts of its transience. So Freud's argument on the level of the intellect has, has no effect on these two. Well, yeah, I mean, clearly, um, as we've mentioned many times in our discussions, an appeal to reason alone is rarely sufficient, right? So the mind is much more influenced, as Freud suggests in that passage you just read, Jamie, by powerful emotional factors than it is by logical or self-evident facts. In this instance, Freud pinpoints the powerful emotional factor at play as that of an intimation of the mourning that will be activated when the beautiful object will cease to exist. The pleasure principle, which governs our psychical functioning, at least at this stage of Freud's thinking, is affronted by this anticipated loss. As Freud writes, the mind recoils from that which is painful, and therefore the enjoyment which would naturally accompany such beauty is, in his words, interfered with. It's interesting to note that it's the idea that beauty is transient that produces this reaction of mourning. The loss is not experienced as such, but it's almost anticipated. It's predicted. It's a future event that is conditioned by previous experiences and is then transferred onto current ones. Freud elaborates on this in the following paragraph. Whilst mourning seems so natural to the layman, for the psychologist, he says it is, a, it is a great riddle. Our libido in the earliest stages of development is directed to our own ego. And later on, though still at an early stage, it is then diverted from our ego to objects, which are thus, in a sense, taken into our ego. If these objects are destroyed or lost, then our libido is free again to find new objects to connect, or indeed to return temporarily to our own ego. So far, so good for Freud. But of course, this is not the whole story. For the libido does not simply glide from one object to another. It is a painful process. The libido is adhesive. It sticks to objects, 
and over the process of time, it has to be almost wrenched off of them. Even if there is a ready object to hand, the libido still clings to what is lost. This is the process of mourning that Freud suggests underlies Rilke and Salome's attitude. In a late paper entitled Analysis Terminable and Interminable, Freud will suggest that some people have a libido that is particularly strong, although psychoanalysis can tell us nothing really about the conditions for this. Perhaps we could see something in the artistic temperament that has a tendency to this adhesiveness of the libido, which could lead to a heightened sensitivity for atmosphere, a feeling of nostalgia, or, if drifting into the realms of pathology, a tendency to melancholy. Mm-hmm. So, um, I guess I'm going to read the penultimate paragraph of the paper now. Freud states, My conversation with the poet took place in the summer before the war. A year later, the war broke out and robbed the world of its beauties. It destroyed not only the beauty of the countrysides through which it passed, and the works of art which it met with on its path, but it also shattered our pride in the achievements of our civilization, our admiration for many philosophers and artists, and our hopes of a final triumph over the differences between nations and races. It tarnished the lofty impartiality of our science. It revealed our instincts in all their nakedness and let loose the evil spirits within us, which we thought had been tamed forever by centuries of continuous education by the noblest minds. It made our country small again and made the rest of the world far remote. It robbed us of very much what we had loved and showed us how ephemeral were many things that we have regarded as changeless. Wow, that's so uh, appropriate. <laughs> this leads us, I guess, suppose, into the final discussion. Tom, can you take us through how Freud brings his insights into the process of, of mourning to reflect on the tragedy mm. of the First World War? Yeah, well, the first thing I think that really comes to mind, uh, just listening to you read that passage again, is that there's a certain nostalgia operating here, isn't there? The time in the, in the past. Remember that Freud at the beginning of this short paper had evoked the smiling countryside on the summer wall. Now this countryside has been destroyed by war. The haze of summer nostalgia seems to hover almost over this text, in much the same way as in Freud's early evocation of childhood in the forests of Moravia in that paper entitled Screen Memories. So we have here memory, fantasy and nostalgia, I think. It's interesting to remember that whilst the original meaning of the word nostalgia was connected to a sense of place, so essentially homesickness, in the 20th century it became more associated with time. We might even think of the very act of writing itself, of Freud sitting down to encode this memory in language as an attempt to recover lost time, a desire that is laced with impossibility. 
with the destruction and loss of so many objects through war. It is unsurprising, suggests Freud, that the libido clings to that which is left, like the love of one's country or the love of one's family and a certain pride in what is common to us. These are like almost like life rafts, I think, that the libido desperately clings to on this in, in a kind of sea of uncertainty and impermanence. But what of those people who, realising the transience of things, make a permanent renunciation of them? For Freud, this position is nothing other than the, the act of mourning that he suspected lay under Rilke's joyless attitude to the beauties of the countryside. Such a position is a miscalculation in Freud's view. By accepting the impermanence of things, by taking the painful step of giving up the pleasure principle in favour of the reality principle, we will be more able to build again after the devastation of war. And I think we'll leave Freud with the last words in this, our final episode of the Summer Shorts podcast series. And he writes, When once the morning is over, it will be found that our high opinion of the riches of civilization has lost nothing from our discovery of their fragility. We shall build up again all that the war has destroyed, and perhaps on firmer ground and more lastingly than before. Oh, thank you so much, Tom. And what a wonderful way for Freud to end, sort of looking towards the future. I guess despite the nostalgia and the, and the melancholy from this paper, it's actually a really beautiful paper to, to read and to discuss as we begin to go into these autumn months. I can see outside the windows of the Freud Museum here in London, the leaves already starting to fall from the trees. So thank you to all of you at home for listening once again to our Summer Shorts series. And thank you to my co-host, Tom DeRose, uh, for his great insights to these papers and to our producer, Carolina Heller. We'll see you all again very soon for our next series of Freud in Focus. Take care. <laughs>